So Acts chapter 8, verse 26, page 917. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and he was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with the scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, See, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus. As he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. May this word of the Lord unite us as a church and make us bold as missionaries. You may be seated. She loved to hear her father's stories, and he had so many of them, and wow, he could really tell them. And she thought she'd heard them all, her and her three older sisters. They'd heard all the old stories a bunch when she was really little, and as they got older, she even got to be part of making some of the new stories. Well, tonight he was telling the old stories, but the audience around their table was somebody they never imagined would be there. See, it's really odd when the man who's responsible for killing your best friend now is seated at your dinner table as a guest. But there he was, Saul of Tarsus, now an apostle named Paul, and his travel companion, his buddy Luke, who always seemed to be taking notes. Paul asked Philip, he said, Philip, what was it like in those days? I know that I inflicted so much damage. And Philip said, yes, Saul, you did. It was really, really difficult in those days. Not only had I lost my best friend Stephen, but it felt like everybody I knew within just a few days was gone when the persecution started. Either everyone I knew had been arrested or had just fled, and it's really, really tough to just walk away from everything you've ever known. I'm so sorry, Paul said. I know you are, brother. Philip responded, and I've forgiven you, as has our sweet Jesus. Listen, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. And God turned something really sweet out of that incredible pain. See, we ended up scattering to Samaria. We figured no Jew would look for us among the Samaritans. They wouldn't want to go there. 
And we went there and we started preaching the gospel and God worked. In fact, remind me later to tell you the story about this sorcerer, a guy named Simon. It's really pretty interesting. Paul said, well, I will hear any story you want to tell me. Philip said, okay, well, girls, what do you think? Um, what do you think Paul would like to hear? What, what, what should I start with? He said to Paul, you know, these girls think that they've heard them all. The girls laughed and rolled their eyes and said, well, that's because we have. He said, well, which one should I tell him? The youngest girl said, ah, oh, daddy, that's tough. These are all good stories. You know my favorite. Tell him the one about the Ethiopian. Philip said, ah, the Ethiopian. That is, that is a good story. You're going to like this. In fact, Luke, do you have something to write on? Because <laughs> I think you're going to like this story. In Redemption Gateway, I think Luke did like that story because he ended up writing it in the book that he was taking notes for that we've been studying called the book of Acts. And some of you are thinking, well, wait a minute, I've never, I've never read in the Bible, I've never read this story about Philip and his daughters telling stories over dinner with Luke and Paul. Where did that come from? Well, I made it up. But, but it does say in Acts chapter 21, there's just a couple verses that describe uh, Paul and his companions going through Caesarea and staying at the home of Philip the evangelist with his four unmarried daughters, and they stayed there for many days. And I can't help but think that the only way that the stories that we've been reading in Acts chapter 8 end up in this book, because Luke wasn't there for it, Paul wasn't there for it, the only way they end up here is because of what we read in Acts 21 where they stayed there, and they must have told these stories, and they must have talked about all that happened. And, and chapter 8 really has focused on what happened through Philip. Uh, we saw at the beginning of the chapter, this is what we looked at last week, that Philip was ministering to the masses. He'd gone to Samaria, and many, many people were coming to faith in Jesus. In this story that we just read a moment ago, Philip has gone from ministering to the masses to now ministering to just one person. And I love that. I love that God cares about the masses, God cares about the world, God cares about lots of people, and God cares about you and about me. God cares big and God cares small. And in this uh, passage that we just read together, uh, we read the story of one man's conversion, this Ethiopian, this Ethiopian eunuch. And in this story, I think we find a real kind of interesting case study for what it looks like to become a Christian. What happens through conversion? Conversion's the word I'm going to use today. That's just a, a short word for saying becoming a Christian. It's the process of being born again. It's the process of becoming a new creation. It's putting your faith in Jesus Christ. It's having a new life and a new heart and new forgiveness and new relationship with God. And so today we're going to look at conversion through the case study of this particular individual of the Ethiopian eunuch. So I just want to recap the story, and then we'll look at five things that we see related to conversion. So uh, Philip has been in Samaria. He's doing all the ministry there. And somehow an angel of the Lord and the Spirit tell him, hey, we want you to go on this particular place. And so he goes there. And when he goes there, uh, he sees a chariot. And the chariot has some sort of royalty in it. Uh, Luke tells us that it was an Ethiopian eunuch. In fact, if you look at what it says in verse 27, we get some real interesting descriptions of this man. It says he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. So this is probably a dark-skinned man, 
Uh, he's working as a court official and a eunuch. And this was because if you were going to work especially close to royalty and the royal queen, uh, the, the male servants that worked for the female royalty became eunuchs to avoid any kind of temptation and funny business and those sorts of things. And so he's on his way back, it says, from Jerusalem. He's gone to Jerusalem to try to worship, and he's on his way back, and he's reading a scroll of the prophet Isaiah, and he doesn't seem to really understand it. And Philip says, hey, do you understand? Hey, what are you reading? I'm reading Isaiah. Well, do you understand what you're reading? And he goes, well, how on earth would I understand this unless someone guided me, unless someone helped me? Why don't you come up here and and explain it to me? And he starts asking him some questions, and the passage of Scripture he's looking at is actually from Isaiah 53, and Philip says, Isaiah 53, I've been learning all about that from Jesus, who's the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, and he explains to him the good news about Jesus. The man is converted, says, oh my gosh, there's some water, let's stop. He gets baptized, and uh, Philip, off he goes. So that's the story. I want to zoom in on a few uh, specific things to try to help us understand what is conversion? What, what is it, uh, what happens when we become followers of Jesus and how does it happen? And so here's the first thing that we need to understand this morning is that conversion is God's work. Conversion is God's work. God is the one who's in the business of saving sinners. Look at what it says in verse 26. Look at all the activity of God here. And some of this feels mysterious, and some of this feels kind of weird, but but it's undeniable that Luke's trying to communicate that God is at work. Look at verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise and go south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So some sort of angel communicates to him, hey, you need to go there. It wasn't like Philip thought, oh, this is a good idea. No, he was told by an angel to do it. And then look at verse 29. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And he does, he just obeys what God tells him to do. And then it says in verse 39, and when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more and he went on his way rejoicing. Now I read that and I think, did he time travel? What happened? Like, did the spirit whisk him away on some sort of magic carpet, right? Or is this just a kind of artistic way of saying, you know, and just as he came following the presence and leading of the Spirit. He left following the presence and leading of the Spirit. I don't know exactly. I don't know exactly how it was that the angel of the Lord communicated this. I don't know if this was through thoughts or impressions or if he actually heard voices. I don't know. And I don't know how helpful it is to speculate on that. I I, I do know we can't miss this, that conversion is God's work. Right? God had his sights set on this Ethiopian eunuch, and God was going to save this guy God was going to give him new life in Jesus, and God had to move his people in place to make that happen. Now, this is what's amazing. God does the work, but he uses people. And so God leads Philip through this process. I have a story. It's not maybe quite as dramatic as as this, but um, when I think about just my own experience of coming to faith in Christ, I was led to Christ by uh, a guy named J.R., and some of you have heard me tell the story. He moved up the street a few houses when I was 17. He just graduated from college, and uh, we introduced himself, and we got to know each other, and he invited me to church a few times, but the main thing was we started reading the Gospel of John together, and uh, we started reading it and talking about it. And uh, he eventually led me to faith, and I, I won't get into all the details of that, but, but w- what was interesting, uh, especially as it relates to this story, is a couple weeks after 
I had become a Christian, after I had been converted, JR showed up at my house and said, listen, uh, my dad is in St. Louis and he's actually really sick and I need to go take care of him and uh, I guess this is goodbye. And he said goodbye and the spirit whisked him away to St. Louis. And, uh, and I've actually, I mean, I've looked, for, I've looked for JR. I've tried to find him through Facebook and Google and all these other things. I haven't found him. I don't think he was an angel. I think he was a real person. Um, and I think someday I'll see him and I'll thank him. But, but from my perspective, like from the Ethiopian's perspective, it was as if JR was just sort of dropped into my street for a season of time to minister to me. And I realize this is a very self-focused way to look at the world. I think God was doing much more than just that. But, but it was as though God had dropped him into our street to help me become a Christian, and then he had a different mission for him. Because God is the one who saves sinners. Conversion is God's work. Look at these verses. These are some verses that describe how we'll be celebrating around the throne of God in the book of Revelation. Here's what it says. It says, after this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. Now, now just notice, I've highlighted this because this is going to be important in a moment, that the salvation that we celebrate is a salvation that is for people from every nation, tribe, people, and language. So God is concerned about the masses, and he's concerned about individuals from among those masses, and all of us will be together uh, before the Lamb, before King Jesus, uh, for eternity, uh, with palm branches in their hands, that's fitting, on Palm Sunday, and we will be crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. That's what our worship will be. Now, the heaven will be the new creation. We'll work and we'll play and we'll live. It won't just be one eternal church service. Children, you're thinking, oh, thank God. I didn't want to go to heaven because that's what I thought it was. Well, that's not all it's going to be. But there will be moments when we gather together around the throne. And what will our song be? Salvation belongs to our God. God, you saved us. God, you gave us new life. God, you made us alive together with Christ. God, you raised us up with him. God, you adopted us as your children. God, you sealed us with the promised Holy Spirit. God, you made us new. Because conversion is God's work. Second thing we see in this story is that conversion is for everyone, regardless of status. Is what I made a mention of just a moment ago. Revelation 7, it said, every tribe and people and tongue and nation, conversion is for everyone regardless of status. And in fact, what this section of the book of Acts is describing is how the gospel is on the move into some unlikely places, right? Last week, the beginning of chapter 8, we saw the gospels on the move in Samaria. Well, Samaria was an unlikely place because the Jews hated the Samaritans. This week, we're seeing uh, God show up to this Ethiopian eunuch, a very kind of random sort of thing. Next week, we'll look at how God shows up to the number one persecutor, the number one enemy of the faith, Saul, and saves him. After that, we're going to see how God doesn't just appear to the, Gent to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. We're going to see that in Acts chapter 10. And the Jews would have thought, the gospel can never go to the Gentiles. Right? God just keeps spreading this good news in unlikely places. Why? Because conversion is for everyone. Get this. 
Conversion is for the rich and powerful. And for those on the margins and those beat up and those cast off and excluded. It's for both. And we see both in this story. Take a look at this. In verse 27, he's an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a a court official. Uh, He's in charge of all her treasure. So he's some sort of finance minister within this Egyptian or within this Ethiopian government. He has significant uh, status there. He's taken a a government-issued SUV uh, to Jerusalem for worship, only this SUV was a chariot that took a lot longer, right? Scholars estimate that this probably was a multi-month journey, maybe as many as five months that this took. So he has some sort of favor with his boss to say, hey, could I have 10 months off to go to Jerusalem and worship? Sure. He also, this is important, it says in verse 28, he was seated in his chariot and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. Now that's important because at this point in history, very, very, very few people had access to private scriptural texts. We didn't have the printing press. You didn't have a Bible kind of everywhere in your home collecting dust and all the translations you could ever think of on your phone. These were precious scrolls housed usually in a synagogue or kind of a a place where a community could all have access to it. But this guy has his own scroll, so he's very wealthy. So, So think about this. The gospel is targeting this man who is in the royal court. He's important. He's a culture maker. He's he's rich. He's powerful. But he's also on the margins. He's also excluded. And here's how we know that. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was now returning, it tells us. But what we know from the Old Testament law is that eunuchs were not allowed into the temple. They had been altered in a way that made it where they were not welcomed in. Now, this guy's probably uh, some sort of Jewish uh, proselyte. He's, he's converted to Judaism, but he's showing up in Jerusalem, probably one of the very few people with dark skin. He gets there after many, many months. Oh, I'm so excited. I get to go. I get to worship. I get to praise God. And he gets to the door and no, you're not welcome in. So he's rich and he's powerful and he's important, but he's on the outside. He's overlooked. He's cast out. And and in the midst of that, God is pursuing him. And I love this. I love that both of those are in this man because there are some of you who think, well, you know, God could actually never love a rich person. Because all you've ever heard is that God has this heart for children, he has a heart for the poor, and he has a heart for the marginalized. And you think, well, you know, and and rightly so. I mean, Jesus said, like, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to come to the kingdom of heaven. And they said, well, that's impossible. And Jesus said, that's my point. You've got to come through me. (laughs) Right? So, So sometimes we think, oh, the gospel's not for rich people. It's for everyone but rich and important people. And sometimes we get so seduced by the kind of cultural story that we imagine that the gospel is only for those who are of affluence and privilege and education and status. And we don't remember, no, this is also for the marginalized and the overlooked and the poor and the left out and the excluded. The gospel is for everybody. Conversion is for all who will receive it. Uh, The pastor of the church I went to when I was in high school, he said that there were three big surprises you'd have when you got to heaven. 
who's there, <laughs> who's not there, and that you're there. <laughs> Get this. Conversion is for everyone, even you. Even you. And if you don't understand that even me part, if that part's like, well, of course it's for me, then you also don't understand conversion. <laughs> because conversion is God's work of miraculous, kind grace poured out for us, where we acknowledge that we're sinners, where we acknowledge that we need Jesus, and everyone is equal at the foot of the cross. Third thing we see about conversion from this story is that conversion requires somebody speaking. Conversion requires somebody speaking. This is so fascinating. You have an angel of the Lord and you have the spirit of the Lord just sort of whisking Philip all over the place. And it makes you think, well, why didn't the spirit of the Lord just show up to the Ethiopian eunuch and go, hey, hey, do you understand what you're reading? No. Why? I mean, God, anyone think God couldn't have done that? Of course he could have done that. But he didn't. What did he use? He used a person. He used a person speaking up. And I love the question and answer in verse 30 and 31. Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and said, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And so what happened? Verse 35, I love this saying as well. Then Philip opened his mouth. Conversion requires somebody opening their mouth. Right, maybe you've heard this, this quote. It's often uh, mistakenly attributed to Francis of Assisi, uh, but it goes like this. and uh, It says, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. And the unicorns fly, and the... <laughs> And it's on a coffee mug, and it's, you know, it's very, use, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. Well, you know what? It's necessary to use words, because nobody comes to faith, nobody is converted without somebody opening their mouth, without somebody guiding, right? There, there's, a, uh, there's a marketing company called StoryBrand, and they do some really interesting stuff related to marketing and branding and helping companies and organizations tell their story. And one of the things that they say is they say that the, the, one of the mistakes that many companies make in their marketing is they make themselves the hero of the story. But the reality is all of us as consumers, we see ourselves as the hero of our story, and we don't want someone else to be the hero. We want a guide that will help us be the hero. And he ta they talk about how uh, every movie that you love, right, there's a hero who has a problem and meets a guide, right? So Luke Skywalker has a problem and meets Han Solo and Obi-Wan Kenobi and all these other people I don't really know anything about. And, and Katniss Everdeen has a problem and she meets a guide, Haymitch, who helps her win the Hunger Games. He says, listen, brands need to position themselves as the guide, not the hero. Now, here's the thing about Christianity. This is why I love this, is none of us are the hero. And yet sometimes we project a Christianity to the world that says, just be more like me. And, and, and understandably, the world goes, no, you're not the hero. And yet what Philip sees is, I'm the guide. 
I'm not a hero, I'm just a guide. I, I, don't, I don't know everything, but I know some things, and I know enough to believe the gospel, so I enough to share the gospel. And so Philip opened his mouth and told him the good news about Jesus. Conversion requires somebody speaking. Have you ever led somebody to Jesus? Those of you who are followers of Christ, I realize some of you are not consider yourself Christians. Those of you who do, have you ever led another person to put their faith in Christ? Have you done it recently? Oh my gosh, when you, when you get to be used by God, like Philip was used by God, there is nothing more exhilarating. There is nothing more incredible than to see somebody's life change because you got to be part of doing it. Have you, have you ever led someone to Christ? Right? And I know some of you are thinking, oh my gosh, I could never lead someone to Christ. Well, do you know what the best way to guarantee that you'll never lead someone to Christ is? To think, I could never lead someone to Christ. This is like when I was a kid, my dad and I used to laugh because we would, uh, we would, you know, he, he would coach my baseball teams and we would practice double plays. And sometimes we would talk, to, and double plays are really tricky for kids who are just barely able to throw it anywhere, right? To be able to throw it to one base and then to another base. I mean, this is, this is tough stuff. And we would talk to these other coaches and they would say, well, we don't practice double plays because our kids could never turn double plays. And we'd think, well, your kids will never turn double plays because you never practice double plays. And listen, what if, what if God has put you on somebody's street like he put JR on my street? What if God has put somebody in your office or at your gym like God put Philip next to the Ethiopian's chariot? What if God's done that? And what if God wants to use you in that way? So, so I, I just can't help but think about this. What if all of us who, who are followers of Christ and call this our church home, what if we... Every week for the next year, what if we prayed, God, would you give me an opportunity and the ability to lead someone to put their faith in Jesus? What would happen? Just think about this. Can you imagine what would happen? If all of us were praying that every week, a regular part of our life was saying, Lord, I don't know, I'm scared to pray this. I don't even know how this would look. I'm sure gonna need some help. But God, would you please make it where I could lead someone to Jesus this year? Can you imagine how your life would change? Can you imagine how their lives would change? Can you imagine how our community would change if a thousand people led a thousand people to Christ and all the ripple effect of that? Listen, conversion comes through people. And there are some people who are extraordinarily gifted at sharing the faith. Philip was probably one of those. And there are other people for whom it is just really, really scary, and I don't have all the answers. But listen, all you have to do is tell someone what you believe, what God's done for you. Because ultimately, it's not up to you having the answers. It's not up to you being clever. Why? Because conversion is God's work. And God uses people. Here's the fourth thing we see is that conversion results in baptism. Conversion results in baptism. Philip, verse 35, told him the good news about Jesus, and as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here's water. What prevents me from being baptized? This is really interesting. It wasn't like Philip was like hard selling him, like, hey, you just put your faith in Christ. There's some water. You better get in there. He was like, oh my gosh, there's water. Why wouldn't I be baptized? 
Shouldn't I get baptized? Listen, because conversion, you see this over and over and over, um, and, and, and this is important to note. This is, this is actually key. When you read the book of Acts, what you're reading is a bunch of adult conversions from people from non-Christian backgrounds, and the normative thing, the normal thing that happens is that when an adult from a non-Christian background gets saved, they get baptized, and they seem to get baptized pretty quickly. It doesn't seem like there's like a 10-year gap, and then they get baptized, uh, but, but they, now, which is, which is why we think, you know, there's some wisdom actually in parents thinking through maybe there's a, a, a different, less high-pressured approach to when kids become converted. But when we're talking about adult conversion, it results in baptism. You're saved and you're baptized. You're saved and you're baptized. You're saved and you're baptized. Next week, we're going to, or next Sunday, we're going to see uh, Saul uh, become uh, converted and he's going to be baptized, right? This is just the normal Thing. And so I just spent some time reflecting on this question that the Ethiopian asks in verse 36. What prevents me from being baptized? Now he's asking it like, why wouldn't I get baptized? But I actually think there are a lot of people, uh, maybe in our church even, who are Christians, who've been converted, who are adults, and who haven't been baptized. And so I kind of ask the question a little differently. Why not? What prevents us from getting baptized? What prevents you from getting baptized if you're one of those people? So I thought of a few things. The first one is this. It's weird. <laughs> it's weird. I mean, honestly, it's weird. Like next week what we'll have is we'll have a horse trough because this is Queen Creek. And we'll have a horse trough up there. And it'll be filled with water. And people will go up in their clothes. And they will get down in the water, representing how Jesus went down into the grave. They'll come up out of the water, representing how Jesus rose from the grave. And then they'll stand there for a second, drip, 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 and get a towel. And doesn't everybody just want hundreds of people to watch you dry off? <laughs> right? I mean, so there's a sense in which, like, what prevents, like, some of you are like, can I have the Ethiopian plan where we do it in the desert and no one sees? Right, but it's just it's just kind of weird. So that's one reason. Another reason is I think a misunderstanding of what baptism is. There's a misunderstanding of what baptism is. Here's how I hear this: is people will say, "Well, I'm a follower of Jesus, but I'm just not ready to get baptized." And here's what I think. Here's what I think you're saying when you say that. I think what you're saying is, I know I've, I've put my faith in Jesus. I know that my sin has been forgiven only because of what Christ has done for me, but I feel like I haven't grown enough. I haven't progressed enough. I haven't made enough improvement yet. And once I make enough improvement to kind of prove to myself that, okay, I'm really doing okay, now I'll be baptized. And that is a misunderstanding of what baptism is. That's treating baptism as if it's this kind of finish line, when in fact, the baptism is the starting blocks. It treats baptism as if it's this work that somebody must sort of achieve a kind of good moral standing before I do that. And that's not what baptism is. Baptism is a picture. Baptism is a symbol. Baptism is a, is, a, uh, is a message that is preached through this action of being baptized. And what it says is, I am cleansed and forgiven and washed and made new, not because of me, but because of Christ. That's what it says. 
So if you've been thinking, well, maybe if I kind of achieve a little more status, then I'll get baptized, you're misunderstanding it. The third reason that we prevent from being baptized is fear. Right? It's, it's very public. Uh, we offer people who want to the opportunity to share their story or to have their, sherry, their story shared. It's one of the most encouraging things about how we do baptism. But, but that's kind of, that can be a, a fearful thing. If you go, I'm a private person. I don't, I don't really want to do that. And so you don't actually have to have your sh- story shared, but you do have to stand in front of everybody. And uh, Jerry Seinfeld says, you know, that the biggest fear, greater than the fear of death, is public speaking. He says, so uh, if you're at a funeral, you'd rather be in the casket than giving the eulogy. <laughs> and, and so there's a fear of, well, what, what about speaking? There's fear of family. You know, what if I tell my, my parents that I'm getting baptized as an adult Christian, and they say, well, you already were baptized as a baby. Or weren't you baptized before? Or, right? And there's all these family dynamics and these family dramas that you have to do. There's also the fear of just admitting you haven't done it. Remember one time I was at a pastor's retreat, all lead pastors. And uh, one of the other, he, he's not a pastor in town anymore, but he was a pastor in Phoenix at that time. And we were walking, we were in Vail, and we were walking along this river. And he told me that he had never been baptized. And I said, why? And he said, well, I just, I never got around to it. And now I just, I'm afraid. I, mean, I can't tell my congregation, like, I've never been baptized. You're supposed to, but I never have. I said, well, dude, there's water right there. Like, let's do it. Like, you, you don't ever need to tell them, but like, you're going to stand before God. You obey him. Right, but there's that fear, right? If, if you're a person who's been a Christian for a long time and has never done it, it's embarrassing. It's embarrassing to go, I take communion every week, but I've just never done this. And so, and so that might be a reason. Maybe you're afraid. Another reason is uh, disobedience. We tell our kids this all the time. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Right? So Mary, who's two, we're working very hard right now. Mary, we need to obey right away, all the way, and with a happy heart. Right? <laughs> and the heart's not always very happy when she finishes that sentence, but we're working on it, right? Because delayed obedience is disobedience. And one of the things that prevents some people from being baptized is just flat-out disobedience. This is a command of Jesus. It is a command. Right, we read it in Acts chapter 2. Repent and be baptized. Now get this. It doesn't mean that if you don't, you can't be saved. Because the thief on the cross was never baptized. But it does mean that if you know you should and you're not, you're being willfully disobedient just like my two-year-old. And so that might be one reason. And then here's the last reason, is I think sometimes people like me uh, emphasize duty over delight. We emphasize, right, as I preach about it, as you hear it talked about, there's an emphasis on duty. It's disobedience if you don't do it. You better do it. Over the delight. And, And so I just want to remind you of the delight. One of the things I love is that when Jesus was baptized... And Jesus didn't need to be baptized to have anything forgiven. Jesus instead was baptized as a picture of how he would identify with his people. And as Jesus was baptized, do you know what the voice from heaven said? 
This is my son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen, that is the voice of God over every Christian who's baptized. This is my son. This is my daughter with whom I'm well pleased. Baptism is a picture that you have identified with Christ, that your sins have been forgiven, that you've been made new, right? That is a delight. There are all these places in the Old Testament where God would do something and people would build a, a statue, not a statue, but like a, a pillar of stones. And, and the idea was every time that your children walk by that pillar of stones, you use that, it's called an Ebenezer. There's an old hymn that says, here I raise my Ebenezer. This, this pillar, so that when your kids say, hey, what is that? You say, hey, look at what God did. You should be able, every time you see a baptism, to be able to say to your kids and your grandkids, did I ever tell you about when I was baptized? Listen to what God's done for me. I love this quote by poet Christian Wyman. He says this, every man has a man within him who must die. And that's what baptism symbolizes. It symbolizes the putting to death of your old man, of your old nature, of your sinful condition, and being raised to new life in Jesus. So conversion results in baptism. And finally, conversion happens by seeing the cross. Conversion happens by seeing the cross. That's what's in view here in Isaiah 53. Uh, He says, verse 31, how can I understand this unless someone guides me Philip comes up and sits with him. In the passage of Scripture he was reading, verse 32, this is quoted from Isaiah 53, which was written 700 years before Jesus, before these events had taken place. And here's what it says. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. In that passage, there's this servant who is being described. This servant who is going like a lamb to the slaughter. This servant who is being humiliated. This servant who is being denied justice. Whose whose life is taken away from him. And the eunuch asks, who is he talking about? Is the prophet talking about himself or about someone else? And in fact, if you even look at kind of Jewish scholarship now, when they study Isaiah 53, as Christians, we go, Isaiah 53 is all about the crucifixion of Jesus. This is all a prediction of Jesus. But Jewish scholars still wrestle with, is, it, is this Isaiah talking about himself? Is this the nation of Israel? What is it? And so Philip opens his mouth and says, listen, this, this person you're reading about, it's not the prophet It's not Isaiah writing this about himself. He's writing about Jesus. And here's what happened. And here's how Jesus went to the cross. And here's how Jesus died as a substitute for your sins. And here's how Jesus finished paying for your sin and mine. That's what what Philip tells him. Because conversion happens by seeing the cross. Listen, conversion doesn't happen by redoubling your efforts to be good. Conversion doesn't happen just by by saying, I'm going to try harder. 
Conversion happens when you see that Jesus, the perfect one, the righteous one, the sinless one, the one who have above all deserved justice and deserved honor, instead received humiliation and injustice for you. When you see that, when you see that Christ did that to win you, to save you, so that you wouldn't be excluded. Think about how this must have felt to this Ethiopian who had just traveled months and had no access here. You can't sit here. Back in your chariot. And now the God of the universe is inviting him in to the family. Not just a, a, a modified royal family where you've had to distort yourself to be included but a full functioning member, a fully adopted son of God. That's what happens through the cross. I love this next quote so much by Tim Keller. He says this, sin says, your life for me. Jesus says, my life for you. Listen, we need conversion because of sin. And sin has come to us saying, hey, you can have all the pleasures that I'll give, but it will cost you your life. And we enter into that, and we're in bondage, and we're enslaved, because sin has come and offered, hey, I'll give you pleasure, I'll give you joy, God's holding out on you, you can't trust him, but it's going to cost you your life. And instead, Jesus comes and says, no, I'll give my life for you. That's what's going on in the cross. Jesus on the cross is losing his father's hand. He's saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's cut off from his father so that we would know that God will never let us go. Listen, this conversion thing, this is God's work and it's available for all people and he's using us to bring it about. He gives us a beautiful picture of what it is through baptism as we experience a washing and a uniting with him. But it all comes when we see the cross, when we see that Jesus died for us. Let's pray. Father, I, uh, I thank you for the way you change us and move us. And God, I pray that even now that some in this room would be responding to your changing and saving work. God, that they would be converted as they respond to the good news, as they uh, don't just acknowledge that this is what happened, but that as they receive it for themselves, as they uh, commit themselves to receive your grace. God, thank you for how you change us. We pray in Christ's name, amen.